With that, I ask you all to please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 138 for our Old Testament reading. And I just hope that you can see uh, from this psalm some of the themes uh, present here that we're going to be talking about today when we get to our text, which is in Philippians. So Psalm 138, verses 4 through 8, reads this. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So you see in that psalm some of the themes of God's faithfulness to what he has begun, to the rule and reign of God, God's authority over all, and also God's attitude towards the proud versus his attitude towards the humble. And so those are some of the themes. Keep those in mind as we... uh, as we go through this morning. Now I ask you to turn over to Philippians chapter 1. This is going to be our text for this morning. And as you're getting over there, I'd just like to give a little bit of background and context to the book of Philippians. One of Paul's letters that he wrote from prison towards the end of his life. And Philippians is one of the most, I think, one of the most encouraging letters in all of the New Testament. It is great encouragement throughout uh, as Paul is exhorting the congregation in Philippi to perseverance through suffering, to thankfulness in all of God's providence, to humility, unity, sanctification, personal relationships within the church. There are so many themes that are touched on in this short little letter And it really does highlight kind of the practical, everyday, lived-out power of the gospel in every sphere of life, from the inner life and our battle against sin, to the interpersonal life and our relationships with one another, and even to cosmic life as God is reconciling all things to himself and executing his large-scale, grand and glorious plans for all of creation. Um, and, and again, really, you have all of these different areas of life that are covered, that he goes from, again, that internal struggle of putting sin to death, where we see some of that in Philippians chapter 3. He's talking about specific relationships within the church. In fact, at the end of the book, he addresses two women by name and exhorts them to get along. So he's concerned with the small, minute details in the church. But then he's talking about the reign of Christ, and he's talking about the resurrection. And so you have all of these themes covered in this one short epistle, and it highlights for us that the ramifications and the implications of the gospel encompass both the grand and the mundane. And that's really going to be a lot of our theme for this morning. And the section that we're going to focus on today deals with both. It deals with both the large-scale plans of God and also the everyday application and the implications of the Christian life for us, even in the small, seemingly minor details of life. And so we're going to begin our reading today 
in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and go all the way through 2.11. And this is the word of the Lord. Only let your life, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would please add blessing to your word this morning. We thank you that you have spoken clearly and perfectly. And Lord, we know that we are imperfect vessels. Lord, I am an imperfect vessel, but I do pray, Lord God, that you would use me as nothing more than an instrument this morning to communicate the truth of your word. Father, fill us with your spirit and give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So again, this section deals with both the grand scale of the Christian life and also the small scale of the Christian life. And again, Paul has said that he is, his purpose for writing this letter is to encourage and exhort the Philippian church in sanctification. And he just got done right before our passage picks up. Paul was talking about how he's, you know, in this Roman prison and he understands that personally it is perhaps better for him to simply die and be with the Lord, but he knows that while he is here, while he is on this earth and living this life, he has an obligation to the churches that he has planted, to the people that he has ministered to, to minister to them for their sanctification, to build them up, to encourage them. And so he is desiring to see in the Philippians full-scale transformation from the small to the great. And as he is exhorting them to uh, to be sanctified and to live more consistently the Christian life, he calls on them in verse 30 to be engaged in the same conflict that he himself is engaged in. And I want to focus in on what exactly this conflict is. And like with so many aspects of life, there are 
two sides to it and also two dangers of, uh, of extremes that we can fall onto. Many of us, uh, we see all the darkness going on in the world right now. We see all the trouble. We see all the forces at work against Christ and against the church. And many of us desire kind of the drama of the fight. We see a life like Paul's, where he lived uh, faithfully before the Lord, where he was living a, a risky life for Christ, where he was being persecuted and he was beaten and he was put in prison and his life bore so much fruit and he was fighting for the gospel. And we look at that and part of us sees that and the, you know, kind of, again, like I said, the drama, the romance of that kind of large scale doing major mighty things for the kingdom. And we want that on some level, especially some of us. And we see kind of these big ministries that are fighting these big fights and we follow them or these big national or international movements and it's easy for us to get attached to them from a distance and to kind of spend ourselves, well, I'm you know, supporting this big ministry or I'm you know, paying attention to what's going on in the world, I'm plugged in and, and all of that. And it's easy for us to get attached to a lot of those big, grand things that are happening where really, we don't have that much of an impact on that. It's very easy to get attached to movements and to causes that are kind of removed from us or that are a little bit too big for us to have a vital impact in it. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. The, the big fight, Paul's life, the, the drama and the willing to risk everything for the sake of the kingdom is a part of the Christian life. That is a part of this conflict. But there is a danger that when we get so focused on the grand vision, when we get so focused on the bigger picture, it's easy for us to miss what God has put right in front of us and what God is calling us to right here in our everyday lives. And that can be a form of actually disengagement from some of the conflict of the Christian life. But then, of course, there's the other side, too, of it, where all of us are in relationships. All of us have families and friends and people in church together, and we're all in relationships with other sinners, and we are working through those relationships. There's day-to-day trials and struggles of just living life as a sinner with other sinful people, and we're seeking to work through that and be sanctified through that and grow and flourish and bear fruit. And again, that is... Uh, an absolutely essential, vital part of the Christian life, as we're going to talk about. But there is also a temptation where we can get so caught up in our little Christian ghettos, our little Christian communities where I've got my family, I've got my friends. Yes, I know these things are happening in the world, but they're not knocking down my door yet. They're not coming for me yet. I'm just going to kind of stay in my nice, safe little Christian bubble and I can live my nice Christian life and I can do all right without really worrying about what's going on in the world and about all of the wickedness and the darkness that's surrounding our world. Again, it can be another form of disengagement where we're so overly focused on the little things and we're so content in our comfortable lives that we're not having an impact on the broader world the way that we're called to. 
But the reality for us is that conflict truly does mark the whole of the Christian life. From our own conflict with our own sin in our hearts to the conflict that arises from sinners living with sinners and trying to love one another in the midst of that to the conflict with a world that is hostile and at war with our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And Christians are called to be engaged in all of it, not just part of it. You think of passages like in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul is talking about all of his trials that he's faced as an apostle and he says that I'm in danger from enemies of the gospel and I've been shipwrecked and I'm imprisoned and I'm, I've been beaten with rods and stoned and you see all of that, this massive grand scale suffering for the gospel on a large scale. But then what else does Paul say in that? He says, there's also the daily anxiety that I feel for all the churches that you have both. You have the suffering and the, you know, the big picture, but then also Paul is anxious for individual Christians and individual churches where he's labored and where he's ministered. Or we can think of a passage like in Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God which we love and that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with cosmic powers and rulers and authorities. And that's true. But a lot of us forget that that passage in Ephesians 6 comes right in the context where Paul is talking about husbands and wives, children and parents, servants and masters, indicating that part of the area where we need the whole armor of God and part of our wrestling against powers and principalities happens in the home and in the church and in those small interpersonal relationships that we deal with every single day. So we need both, and we need to deal with both, and this morning we're going to try to deal with both. And first, we'll talk about the grand-scale conflict. So Paul says in verse 27, as he is desiring the sanctification of the church, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. First thing to understand He mentions your manner of life. So he's not talking about just part of our life or aspects of our life, but the whole of our life. What characterizes us as Christians? What is our general attitude and orientation as Christians? What are we living for? What marks our life? And our manner of life is one where he goes on to say, of standing firm and striving. And right after that, he mentions, he says that you are standing firm, that you are striving, and then you're not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul mentions very casually our opponents. He doesn't explain these are who your opponents are and this is why you have opponents. Paul just assumes the Christian life is one where there will be opposition. The nature of our life, our manner of life, is marked by conflict. The Christian life is a life of warfare. We have opponents because Christ has opponents. And the, the, the thing that we have to understand is that if you are in Christ, then you are in conflict with Christ's enemies. That's inescapable. And our posture towards those opponents, as I mentioned, is to be marked by two things, standing firm and striving. And so when we're standing firm, that indicates defense. That indicates that when the enemy is, when we are facing a barrage from the enemy, when the enemy is on the attack, kind of how we are right now, when all the forces of darkness are surrounding us, when we're being pressed on every side, when we are facing that continual attack, our call as Christians in this conflict is to stand firm. 
That means that we're not ready to compromise, that we're not ready to capitulate, that we are not ready to conform to what the world wants us to be, but that as Christians, we are to hold the line. We are to uh, defend the truth. We are to uh, not surrender. We are to be unyielding as Christ's people in this conflict. So when we are facing that opposition, we stand firm. We do not concede or surrender. But then there's the other side of that, because a lot of us can get on board with standing firm. We'll say, yes, of course, we need to stand firm. We can't compromise. We got to be strong. We got to face what comes. But then he also says, not only are we to stand firm, but we are to strive for the gospel. That implies offense. That's counterattack. As we have opportunity, Christians are not called to stand firm in the day of trouble and then look around and take stock and say, okay, we're still in pretty good shape. So let's just kind of hold on to what we have because if we go out and if we start pressing the claims of Christ and if we start moving forward with the gospel, then we're just going to stir up more conflict. Let's protect the status quo. Let's hold on to what we have. Let's not try to provoke anybody or cause any problems. That's not what we're called for. We're not called to mere contentment and guarding what God has given to us, but we are called to multiply the fruit of what God has given to us. And so we don't only defend, we don't only stand firm, but we also proclaim, we strive, we move forward. We are active as we press the claims of Christ in all spheres and in every place. And this is because as Christians, we have been given instructions. We have been given war aims. You know, the, uh, the, the New Testament, the military analogy of the Christian life is strong throughout the New Testament. It's over and over again repeated that the Christian life can be compared to a military campaign. And in any successful military campaign, you need to have the people who are running the war, the people who are in command, need to have definite objectives. You need to have definite war aims. You can't just be aimlessly fighting with no clear end goal. And for us, we have been given an objective, and that is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. That is our objective. That's what we're striving for as Christians. And in a military conflict, if it's well commanded, everything in that war is ultimately should be serving the purpose of the great aim. Every battle, every, uh, every unit, every platoon, everything ought to be serving the purpose of the war aim, the grand objective. And for us as Christians in our lives, everything about our lives ought to be serving the grand objective of our war against Satan and that is the Great Commission, our war against wickedness. Everything about our lives, our manner of life, is directed towards the Great Commission. Our whole life lived in service of making disciples, teaching them to obey Christ. All that we do serves this greater purpose. And Paul uses his own life as an example here. He says in verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 30, that you should be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Turn back to Acts chapter 16, please. This is what Paul's referring to, the conflict the Philippians saw that he had. In Acts 16, this is an account of Paul's time in Philippi when he was planting this very church that he's now writing to. 
And we know, you know, we, a, lot of our, a lot of the great stories from Acts, especially the Philippian jailer, Lydia, that all happened in Philippi. And so they're all in this church receiving this letter from Paul. Acts 16, beginning in verse 16, we read this. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the spirit came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So that's what Paul's referring back to when he says the conflict that you saw I had. He's talking to the Philippians about his time in Philippi where he and Silas were beaten and were imprisoned. And they saw, they witnessed themselves that Paul's manner of life was one that put him in conflict because Paul was obeying his marching orders. Paul was going forth into all the world and seeking to make disciples. He was striving for the faith of the gospel. He was risking his life to proclaim Christ and Christ's claims on all of life. And notice that Paul wasn't afraid to upset the established order. The the accusation against Paul and Silas is that they were advocating customs that were not lawful for Romans. And that's because they were proclaiming in a time where all Romans had to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. Paul and Silas were proclaiming that no, 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 only Jesus is Lord. And you can't profess that Caesar is Lord. And so Paul was going forth, he was engaged in the conflict, he was saying things that he knew were going to cause trouble and were going to upset people and were going to put him in danger, but he did it anyway. And so Paul is referring back to his life and the conflict that they saw and also the conflict that they hear that he still has. Again, Paul is writing this letter to them from prison. And the reason why he is in this prison in which he would eventually be executed is because he had refused to go along with the Jews. He had refused to preach circumcision. He had refused to compromise any of the gospel. He had refused to say that the Gentiles had to become Jews before they became Christians. He refused to uh Stop preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he ended up in prison because he was standing firm, because he would not concede the truth. And so as Paul's example makes clear, this conflict is going to invariably bring suffering. And this is a suffering that we are called to imitate as Christians. And again, this is something, just like the opposition that we face as Christians This suffering is something that Paul assumes. In verse 29, he says, It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Again, to continue the war analogy, if the Christian life is a war, the assumption is that there will be casualties. This isn't a war in which nobody gets hurt. There is going to be trial, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be death, there's going to be sacrifice. But Paul says 
that it is granted to you as a gift that you should suffer for the sake of Christ. Again, this is uh, throughout the New Testament, just one passage in 2 Timothy 3.15. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so the call is for all of us to see this persecution. Here in Philippians, when he says it's granted to you to suffer for his sake, the call is for us to see this persecution, this suffering, these trials, these casualties of the Christian life as an honor. Again, just like how if if a man or a son or a husband goes out to fight in a military conflict for an honorable, just cause, and he is wounded in that or he dies in that, there's honor with that, right? We honor those who died fighting for something greater than themselves. We died for someone who fought, who, uh, we honor someone who fought and died for a just cause. How much more if you suffer and die for Christ. This is the greatest cause. This is the most righteous cause. And Paul is saying, just like how we ascribe honor to those who die in earthly conflict when the cause is just, so we should see it as not a grit our teeth and accept it as a fact of the Christian life, but as an honor to suffer for the name of Christ. Just like the apostles did in Acts 5, early on, they left the presence after being beaten and they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. It's not rejoicing because we like suffering. It's not rejoicing because we have a martyr complex. It is rejoicing because it is an honor to suffer for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. More so than it's an honor than any earthly honor we can receive from fighting in any earthly conflict. But the underlying character of this manner of life that Paul's talking about, you see it, and I didn't mention it before, is unity. That's essential. He says, back up to um, verse 27, that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Our manner of life, the character of the Christian life, that is a life of conflict, must be marked by unity. Because to, infe- to effectively engage in this conflict, we must be of one spirit, of one mind, and striving side by side. This is it. The unity of God's people is the key to living a life that is consistently and effectively oriented toward the advance of Christ's kingdom. And Paul indicates as much in verse 28 when he says, not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Paul explicitly and specifically points to the unity of Christians and their courage in the midst of that unity as the thing that testifies to the enemy that they are fighting a losing battle. The enemy knows by our unity and our courage in that unity that they cannot win. Because the unity of Christians, that deep, essential, true, unbreaking covenant bond that we share as Christians is not something that can be man-made. The kingdom of God is not just another idea of man. It's not some sort of man 
thought up scheme. This is God's great work. This isn't, you know, our journey to utopia. This is what God is doing. And that's demonstrated by the unity that God forges between Christians. This is part of the reason why so much of Paul's writing is focused on the fact that there's no longer Jew or Gentile, but God has taken the two who were divinely distinguished and made them one. And if God can do that, if through the cross of Christ, God can take Jews and Gentiles and unite them together as one people, then God can reconcile all things in Christ Jesus, just like we are told. God can unite all things together in Christ Jesus, just as we are told in Scripture. So the unity of Christ's people is essential for us to engage in the conflict. It's the necessary foundation for us to be effective in our engagement. And this unity is cultivated and strengthened and nurtured and maintained, not in the grand scale conflict that we've been talking about, but in the small, daily, mundane conflicts that we face as Christians. And that's what Paul turns his attention to next, going on to chapter 2, verse 1. Important for us to remember, this is a letter that was written, meant to be read all at one time, not to necessarily be broken up into different sections. And so the end of chapter 1 flows right into the beginning of chapter 2. And verse 1, you get that from the word that Paul uses, so, meaning that this is a consequence. This is a result of everything that came before. This is connected to what came right before. It follows from it. And Paul begins this section with a series of rhetorical statements. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, he's not questioning whether these things exist, but rather he's using them like rhetorical questions. Remember, he's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. And so, yes, if you're Christians, then there is encouragement in Christ or affection in Christ. There is encouragement in the spirit. There is affection and sympathy. If we are Christians, these things are present. These are a given for the Christian life. And Paul is using these as devices to show that these obviously true statements indicate that what comes next is basic. It's foundational. It's nothing special about the Christian life, or it's nothing special in the Christian life. This is basic to it. Part of our manner of life, like we've been talking about. And again, what follows then is a call to order our manner of life according to these realities, that there is comfort from love, that there is encouragement and affection and sympathy and all the rest of it. Again, like I mentioned, the unity that exists between Christians is fostered and maintained and strengthened through faithfulness in the small conflict. And so what Paul now instructs us in is radically difficult. It may be basic, and it may be foundational, and a given in the Christian life, but it is radical if we're actually seeking to seriously live it out. Paul says in verse 3, I'm sorry, one thing I forgot to mention before verse 3, verse 2, He's talking about the same thing of unity, right? One mind, one spirit, one heart. All of this flows straight from the unity he was talking about in chapter 1. Now the very same unity is being fostered and strengthened. And the way that it is strengthened, beginning in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. 
Consistent self-denial is what the Christian life calls for. And not just any self-denial, but self-denial for the sake of others. Sometimes we can be all about self-denial for our own sake. We can look and say, well, you know, I don't need much. I'm going to live a simple life. You know, I don't need all this luxury. And it kind of exalts us, right? Because we take a little bit of pride in that. Look, I'm more simple. I'm not living this complex, you know, wealthy, lavish lifestyle. You know, I don't need all that much. It's not about pride and it's not about boasting and it's not about for our own immediate good. But our self-denial is self-denial specifically for the sake of other people. It is us sacrificing things so that other people can have what we, what we otherwise would need. It's seeking, it's, it's looking at the needs of others as the needs of others and the good of others as more important even than our own good. And this follows again from the fact that we are one body. That's what this is. It's living consistently as one body of Christ. And like Paul says in Ephesians 5, no one ever hated his own flesh. If we're living as one body, if we understand that we are all united in Christ and connected to one another, then we're going to care about the good of one another, even at times other than over and against our own good. A desire for other people to flourish, even if it's costly to us, even when it calls for sacrifice. That's what the Christian life calls for. And that's what fosters unity between Christians. When we're there for each other, when we're sacrificing for each other, when we're not just enjoying one another's company during the good times, but when we're actually going without and giving up and taking the hit ourselves for the sake of one another. He says something similar then in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We're not to simply live this life trying to discern and prudentially decide what's expedient or what's profitable for ourselves, but rather we're to consider even more so what's going to be profitable for those around us. We shouldn't just say, I'm going to make a decision. It seems like what's best for my family, for my family, but it's going to hurt a lot of people around me. We take others into account. We take into account the people whom God has put us in a covenant relationship with. We don't have this attitude. I've got mine. I got to look out for myself. No, we look out for one another. We love our neighbors as ourselves and who are our neighbors, especially the people God has put right in front of us. And again, don't misunderstand me. This isn't a call for self-abasement. This isn't a call for us to not take care of ourselves. It's not a call for us to ignore our own interests or intentionally, uh, you know, intentionally make our lives way harder than they need to be. But again, it's a true conception of us belonging to the same body, that we take care of each other and understand that when one of us is hurting, just like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, the unity of the body of Christ, when one of us is hurting, we're all hurting. And so we sacrifice for one another, even at our own personal expense. Like I said, it's easy when things are good to kind of have this facade of unity that we all get along. But when things are bad, when you actually have to pull somebody up out of a tough situation, when you actually have to make sacrifice, sacrifice your time, your energy, your resources, your money for the people around you, that's where true unity comes in. And that's the kind of unity that equips us and that strengthens us for the battle that we're called to, the big battle that is the Christian life. And yet this spirit itself, the spirit of self-denial, sacrificial love, unity, and all the rest, this spirit, it 
only is attained through us engaging in conflict with our own sin. See, self-denial for the sake of others is extremely hard. It's unnatural for us as fallen sinful human beings. Our nature is to look out for ourselves and to forget other people when the chips are down because I got to take care of myself. This is only comes if we are actively engaged with putting our sin to death, if we are actively fighting our sin. Because every time an opportunity arises, again, we're pretty good at looking like we're doing the self-denial sacrificial thing when it's stuff that, you know, we kind of like to do or that we're gifted in doing. We don't mind doing it. But when we have an opportunity to actually personally suffer true hardship in order to minister to others, there is always a deep-seated inner conflict that occurs. And we can't escape these thoughts. It's very hard for us to escape these thoughts. Why should I be put out? This is going to interrupt my time. This is going to keep me from doing what I want to do. This disrupts my plan. This makes my life harder. It's inconvenient. It's exhausting. It can be frustrating. And we can always come up with an excuse why this time I don't have to sacrifice. This time somebody else can do it. It's very easy for us to to come up with what seems like a plausible excuse for ignoring these commands. And all this even without considering the person that we're called to sacrifice for, the sinner that we're called to sacrifice for. Because what's our natural thought process? Well, this person, why should I help them? What did they ever do for me? Well, I've helped this person before, but they're ungrateful. Well, you know, I I don't really get along with that person so much. I don't feel like I, you know, really need to help them out in this situation. Again, this is the natural, sinful godless response to this call for radical service. And that attitude, that spirit, where we're looking around at one another, where we're being partial towards one another, where we're willing to help, you know, when it's not too bad for us, but when it really calls for sacrifice, we're not going to be there. That's the kind of spirit that destroys unity. That's the kind of spirit that weakens us in the battle. If we have that, if that's the spirit of this church, then we are not going to be effective if we try to engage in the conflict out there with the world, with all the wickedness. We need to be united, truly united, and that means sacrifice. If we take this call seriously, if we are dying to ourselves in the small things every single day, this puts us always into conflict with our own sin. And if we're not constantly in conflict with our own sin, we have no business in conflict with the sin out there in the world. If you're not putting your sin to death, if you're not fighting your sin tooth and nail every day, what are you doing in the world trying to fight the sins that are out there? Some of us, we neglect the small conflict because we like the glamour of the grand conflict. You know, I'm too busy doing real ministry. I'm doing this big work. I can't be, you know, plugged into a local church. I can't be, you know, consistently ministering to individuals in my church. I can't be coming under the uh, leadership in the, you know, I can't submit myself to the elders in the church. I'm too busy. I'm doing these bigger things. Oh, I can't go to worship with God's people on Sunday morning because I got to go down to the abortion clinic and do big ministry. Yeah, that's a big ministry, but you got to be with God's people. You've got to be meeting with the people of God. 
I don't have time to invest in others. I don't have time to go and serve my neighbor, to love the people that God has put me in community with because I'm out there. I'm out in the world. I'm out doing bigger, better things. Again, the bigger and better things, not better, the bigger things are legitimate, but not without true unity every day and uh, and life together community with God's people. This overemphasis on the grand conflict, if we overemphasize that and we think that all that's important is fighting the big battles out there in the world, what that does is it actually removes the only foundation that can make us uh, impactful in the grand conflict. Because again, it destroys unity. It destroys the mutual service and self-sacrifice that we're called to. But again, there's the opposite temptation the temptation to neglect the grand conflict for the small. We have our families. I'm just working on my family. I'm working on my kids. We have our communities. I'm working through these tough relationships in the church. You know, I'm so busy, you know, just with all of these relationships. And if I go out into the world, and if I go out and proclaim the gospel, and if I go out and fight the big enemies of the church, that's going to put all of this in danger. That might jeopardize my comfortable relationship in the church. That might jeopardize some of my family. And so it's easy for us to just focus so much on the small, everyday, like I mentioned at the beginning, kind of Christian community where it's a little bit safe and sure we have our, our issues with one another, but we're working through that. And to focus all on that and not focus on the grand call of the Great Commission, the earth-shaking impact that the gospel is supposed to have. Because here's the question. If the unity that gets fostered in the small conflict of dying to self and living for others and sacrificing and all the rest, if that unity isn't the foundation for larger engagement in the battle, then what's the point of it? To make some friends? To have a nice time? To be around like-minded people? No, we're called not just to be with one another, to live for one another, to sacrifice for one another, but then to go out and fight, to go out and make disciples, to go out and fulfill the Great Commission. If we're not advancing the kingdom of Christ, if we're not achieving the aims of the Great Commission, then what's the point of all of it? What are we doing? That's the point of the Christian life. That's the war aim. All of our life is directed towards that. Both of these, the small and the large, are essential, and both of them are only and exclusively and perfectly realized in Christ Jesus. Verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is the perfect example and the perfect fulfillment of victory in that small conflict. Christ is the rightful king. Christ is the creator who made all things, who rightfully rules all things. And in that, Christ showed the ultimate picture of self-denial by leaving his rightful place as the ruler of all, taking on a human nature and living in this sin-filled world, leaving what was his own position of glory, what was his by right, that which it says that he did not count it as a thing to be grasped. He left and laid aside his glory for the sake of his pitiful creatures to sacrifice for us. 
And through his earthly life, he lived as a servant. He gave himself for others. He talked. He healed. He invested time and energy into his disciples who were of little faith and who were slow to believe. Christ spent his life in service all the way to his shameful execution on the cross where he literally laid down his life for other people. What we are called to imitate is Christ dying for us. That's what we're called to imitate. He died to secure life for his people. He showed and lived out and achieved the perfect, sacrificial, self-denying love that we call to imitate. And that's what we look at. See, our temptation, when we think about our call to serve, our temptation is to look around at everybody. Well, what's this person done for me? Just like I mentioned. What's that person done? Why does this person deserve it? No, don't look at other people. Look at Christ. That's who you're called to imitate. You don't serve others because they're worthy of your service. You serve others because Christ served you. So is this person ungrateful? I've helped this person so many times and they're never thankful. How thankful are you to Christ? Are you as thankful as you should be? I've done enough. I'm always serving. I'm always helping people. Let somebody else step up. How much did Christ do for you? Don't look around at other people. And I know some of you are thinking, I sure hope so-and-so is listening. All of us need to be listening to this. None of us do this the way that we ought to do it because Christ is our example. Stop looking around at everyone else. Stop looking saying, well, I'll step up when this person steps up. No, do what Christ did. Every one of us do what Christ did. This room, this people, this church, these are the people that God has put you by his providence into relationship with. These are the people that God has called you to lay your life down for. Are you doing it? Or do you have excuses for why you're not doing it? Look at what Christ did for you. And in gratitude for that and in imitation of that, do the same for the people in this room. That's what you're called to. And then verses 9 through 11, Christ is the assurance of our victory in the grand conflict. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ is the assurance of the defeat of all of his enemies. And so because of this, we can know for certain that whatever we sacrifice, whatever we have to spend to press the claims of Christ over all of the earth, it will end in victory. No matter how mighty the enemy might seem, no matter how strong the enemy is, no matter how vicious the hatred of Christ and his people are, Christ is victorious. He who sits in the heavens laughs at the rebellion of man. And so we can know that we can be bold. We can fight with courage and with confidence and with boldness, pressing the claims of Christ in every sphere of life, pressing Christ's lordship over all people and all things. We can do so confidently, just like we sang, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. Even if we are sacrificed for the sake of the kingdom of Christ, we know that it's a sacrifice worth making. We know that we're fighting a winning battle. We know how it ends. And so we should be courageous. Christ's enemies cannot beat him. And so if we're faithfully engaging in the conflict of this Christian life, we must be united together in Christ. I know that it's easy for us to laugh and make fun about New Year's resolutions because by the third week of January, usually we're all forgetting about them. 
But the new year, there is a kind of natural providential opportunity to examine your life, to take stock of your life. What are you investing your life in? What fruit are you bearing in your life? Are you serving the people that God has put in your life? Are you sacrificing for one another? Are you, do you have an eye towards the great conflict, towards the great commission, towards the kingdom of Christ moving forward? Or are you content to just sit in your little small groups and to enjoy one another's company and then to go and, you know, not engage with the wickedness that's going on in the world? We need to live in genuine, lived-out love for one another that's an imitation of Christ so that we have integrity and unity as we go forth and we press the claims of Christ that we're actually living it out. We don't go out as hypocrites into the world telling the world to obey Christ while we're disobeying him in our relationships with one another. And we are courageous to face the enemy. We need to be willing to suffer. And we need to do all of this because we know that our king ultimately is victorious.